the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. Well, after last week, you now know pretty much everything there is to know about the background of the Passover and why the Jews celebrate it. But it is basically God preparing the Israelites for their departure. And it just ensures that they're going to remember how God redeemed them. So he gives them really good instructions on how they are to celebrate this night every year. It's called the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And then there is that moment of redemption that we learned about at midnight. The Lord passed over the doors of the Israelites, but then he struck dead the firstborn of the Egyptians. So Pharaoh just, he's done with these Jews. And he's like, you guys, get out. You're out of here. That's it. Get out. Leave now. All right. We are going to cover today, chapter 13 and 14. I titled this, When Your Back is Against the Red Sea. But before we get to the Red Sea, we have to note here, this is where the exodus from Egypt starts. In episode one of this season in the overview of Exodus, we also discussed the timeline of the four books together, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All four books together are chronological and they total the 40 years of Moses's leadership. We often think that it's really just Exodus that is the 40 years it's not. So I'm going to put the printable of the timeline that we created of Exodus and these other books uh, back in the show notes again today. But starting here in chapter 13, the Israelites begin part one of their Exodus journey. And that is the two month trek from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Then in Exodus chapter 19, all the way through Leviticus, they're going to be camped at Mount Sinai for a time period that totals 11 months. So that, that, that's a lot of books, but they it only covers 11 months. And then it is not until the book of Numbers that the Israelites will start wandering in the wilderness for 38 years. So we are not wandering yet. We are just on the way to Mount Sinai. It's a two-month trip. For now, the Israelites are finally on their way, and God, of course, has more instructions. They must do three things consecrate, commemorate, and communicate, starting in chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So we've heard this before. God is first reiterating what was told in chapter 12. He's like that uh, father with his teenage driver who reminds the kid over and over, don't forget to fasten your seatbelt. Don't forget Uh to fasten your seatbelt. I'm reminding my kid over and over, don't forget to stop at the stop sign that oh you just gosh. passed. That's what I'm reminding my kid about. <laughs> yeah. Well, the point is he does it because he just doesn't trust that his child will drive safely. Oh, he will not. Okay. <laughs> well, God and Moses are going to be repetitive because they do not trust that the Israelites have the maturity to obey and they are spot on. Right. So first here, he commands again that they consecrate. Now, consecrate is the word used in the NIV version of our Bible, older versions use the word sanctify. And to consecrate or sanctify means to be set apart for God's service. 
So he's saying, set yourself apart. The law he gives here is that every firstborn male, people, and animals were to be consecrated or set apart for the Lord. Why does he do this? Because God had redeemed the firstborn male and animal on the Passover night. I think it's worth pointing out that obviously these are really good instructions for life, but they're really hard things to do when the rubber meets the road. And we're going to see that with the Israelites. And even if you think about your own life today, you know sometimes the things that you should set yourself apart from or separate yourself from, it's just hard to do in in reality and practice. Like it's hard to stop at the stop sign. Like (laughs) talk to Mr. (laughs) Cody about that. (laughs) Really hard. Continuing on in verse three, then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day. The day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast today in the month of Abib you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. So first consecrate, and now he says, he commands that they commemorate this day. The law here is honor this day, the first in the month of Abib, and for seven days, no yeast. Why does he ask them to do this? To remember that God fulfilled his promise to bring you out and into the promised land. Verse eight, on that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised an oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord, the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So first consecrate, then commemorate. And now he says, communicate to their children the story of the redemption. The law here is that they are to tell their children what God did for them personally and for every Israelite. And why should they do this? So that the generations will know that God also brought them out of Egypt. Now, note to all of us, there is a Jewish custom today. You've probably seen it in pictures where it said in this verse, like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead. These words are interpreted here to be literal to many Jews. It says like a sign on your hand, but many Jews have taken this command so literally that even today they wear these phylacrates or tefillin, I think it's pronounced, which are leather boxes that are worn, strapped one on the forehead and one on the left arm. And in the boxes are four strips of parchment with verses on them 
Two of the strips contain the verses we just read in Exodus 13, 1 through 16. The other two strips have verses from Deuteronomy. Wow, that's interesting because I've never heard of that before. And when I was reading it, I was thinking like we're supposed to tattoo these things on our arms or something. But no, it's an actual box that they would yeah, strap. Yeah, they do. And you can you can Google it because you can see a lot mm-hmm. of people in Israel really do wear them. It's, it's, they wear it on, I guess it is holy days or when they offer prayers in the morning. And they do this whole ritual of these leather strips that they wrap around their fingers. It's fascinating. Go read about it. But it it still is quite common today. It's cool. It's kind of like I have this prayer bracelet where you write the prayer and then you tuck it in there. And maybe it's something like that. It's when they offer, I think, their morning prayers. But Mm. yeah, they actually wear a box on their head. Very cool. cool. All right, guys. So so moving on from that, we now have the Red Sea checkmate. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. So what route did they take? There is a lot of speculation about this, but it's not much of a debate as most commentaries end up with the same opinion. The southern route is the most likely. The northern route is definitely out because God told them not to go through Philistine country and it cuts right through it. The route takes them from southeast, from modern Ismailia to the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. And we have map 29 in the show notes, which shows all three possible routes with the most likely the southern route in red. So what was the location of the Red Sea crossing? The most likely place for the parting of the sea would have been the northern tip of the modern day Gulf of Suez. And you can see that also on the map. So I think it's worth noting here that it's really interesting that God knew that if they faced war, they were probably going to chicken out. Mm -hmm. And there's something that people say a lot, and it is that God's not going to give you more than what you Mm -hmm. can bear. And that's not necessarily true. People think it is, but it's not. God's Mm going to give you, he's going to let things happen so that you know that you have to rely on him. Mm -hmm. But I do love the fact that there are going to be times when God's going to recognize if it's too much for them, I'm going to take them this way because so so it's not that he's not going to let you handle more than you can bear. You can't bear the thing. Sometimes you have to rely on him, but he still will have his hand on you and he might redirect if he realizes it'll be too much. No, we're going to see in the next two episodes after this, he is doing a slow build of faith in everything he does. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, because he has a purpose for every single thing he does in Mm -hmm. your life. All right, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. If you study Genesis with us in season one, you will be happy that they did not forget Joseph. It was his final request in chapter 50. I am not sure how or where they had kept his bones, and I do wonder about the bones of his brothers because it doesn't say anything. Like, did Judah and the others just get left behind? We don't know. Yeah, because Judah 
is the line that yeah, Christ is supposed to come from. So, Did his family bring his bones out? It doesn't say. Mm-hmm. But we do know that um, from Genesis that Jacob was buried with his father, Isaac. Fascinating. All right. Continuing in verse 20. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Definitely baby steps here. Can you imagine having a cloud? Let's talk about the cloud. The presence of the Lord is getting larger. We started with Moses and a little burning bush. That's all he got. And now the Lord is in a cloud by day and fire by night. I mean, I'd like to think that if God put a big old fire in front of me to <laughs> I'd walk have a lot at of faith. night. Yeah, I mean, I'd be like, <laughs> anything you want. Here I, I am. I know. It, this cloud is a moving presence of the Lord that never leaves them. A miraculous reminder that God is taking care of them. When the cloud moved forward, they moved forward. When it stopped, they stopped. Nothing ever, ever, ever to worry about. No decisions to make. Just follow the cloud. I very much want a cloud. Think about every major decision in your life. Should we move? Sell our house. Take a new job. Change careers. Get married. Have another baby. Have a surgery. What would you do? You would just follow the cloud. (laughs) Hey, guess what? You have a cloud. Know what it is? The Bible. The Bible. And if you read it, and this has happened to me time after time after time after time, um, he will tell you what to do. Um, And here's a recent example. I had had, my mom is is going through cancer right now, and I had woken up in the middle of the night, and I had this very bad dream, terrible dream, that my mom had died not from cancer or something else, but that she had died. And I woke up going, oh my God, something happened in the middle of the night. Something happened in the middle of the night. Something happened. Something happened. I was worried about her. So I get my Bible and I just started to read. And guess what? It, I, where I was in my Bible at that time, it was a story about Jesus and the people had asked him to come and, and help this girl. And then when he got there, he, they said, oh, you're too late. She's dead. And he said, oh, yeah. no, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And he held her hand and, and she got up and walked. And now I'm getting chills while I tell you this, because then I was like, thank you, Jesus. You just gave me peace and I can go back to sleep. Aww. He will do that for you. That's your cloud. That's like the my word adoption story. Hebrews 11. I can't go into it now, but it was great. A great thing that happened to me too. Well, the Israelites follow the cloud and the cloud oddly turns back. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Phi Horita between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. So the Israelites did this. I love that God wisely gave Moses a heads up here. Go back and camp by the sea. Pharaoh's going to pursue you, but I am going to give the world something to remember for eternity. Personally, for me, this directive would have given me much anxiety. But to his credit, Moses is a man of obedience and does not even question the wisdom of putting two million people within striking distance of Pharaoh. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the 
people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We let the Israelites go and we have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen, troops, and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pharaoth, opposite Baal Zephon. So what was Pharaoh thinking? In verse 5, Pharaoh realizes that the Israelites have fled. He may possibly have still believed that they were just going on a worship retreat. We don't know. But at this point, three days have passed and Pharaoh now knows for sure that they are not coming back. The reality of Egypt's bankrupt economy hits Pharaoh and the officials. Their resources have been destroyed in the plagues and their entire labor force just escaped. So Pharaoh rallies with the help of a hardened heart from God and calls out his army, not just any army, the best of the best in his army and all of his chariots. I cannot imagine how he thought he would corral almost two million people and walk them back like a herd of cattle. But perhaps he was just so angry he was winging it. Well, it worked for him for so long. He thought it was going to work again. (laughs) But no, God had other plans. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Well, what were the Israelites thinking? Of course, they were terrified. I would have been too. They have no weapons of significance. How could the Israelite men and women who were even of the age to fight protect such an exposed mass of children, elderly and stuff, lots of stuff from Pharaoh and his chariots? They couldn't. So they panicked. And as the Israelites typically do, they look for someone to blame. And Moses was their man. They are whiners. They're just serious whiners. They're so melodramatic here. They moaned that they were brought out to the desert to die. The question I ask is, how could they forget the years of slavery and murder of their children? How could they forget what God and Moses just did in the plagues? And how could they ignore the cloud of the Lord right in front of their eyes? The Israelites have weak faith, born out of a lack of trust and imagination. God has been super creative and downright ingenious in bringing them out so far. And if they had given him any credit, they would have watched the Egyptian approach with excitement rather than fear. So score one for Israel's rejection. We are now three to two on the scorecard of rejection versus trust. Yeah, but I mean, while we're sitting here, how many 2000 and some odd years later, judging them for not having faith, I do think um, they came from a place of oppression. It would probably have been a scary thing, you know, when the king and all of, like you said, they didn't have any weapons. Right. So... I get it why they were scared and I get why they were um, not having the faith that probably they should have with that big ball of fire in front of them. Yeah, exactly. It's hard. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. (gasps) 
I love Can't that verse. Can't you just hear God <laughs> saying that to you today? Yes. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And that's the point. Where, where do you turn when your back is against the wall? Do you grumble and blame? Do you pull your covers over your head and sleep? Or do you distract yourself with entertainment? I would say I distract myself with busyness, which is too. also not good. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Right, which is kind of like pulling the covers over your head. It's just like turn something on instead. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, what did Moses have to say about this? Moses commanded the Israelites to do three things that we all should remember. Do not be afraid, stand firm, and be still. The commentaries differ in their thoughts about the tone that Moses used when he spoke. Well, if they were whining to me, I could tell you the tone I'd be <laughs> I know. using. And that's what some of them say. Some say he's comforting in his instructions, like, it's okay, be still. And others imply a curt tone. However, I kind of, I'm kind of like with you on the curt tone because the translation for you need only to be still is ye shall hold your peace or be silent or be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless of his tone, this has to be the most intense scene of the Old Testament. I want to say that again. This is the most intense scene of the Old Testament. We're going to talk about it for a couple more episodes. Picture this. Moses and millions huddled up with their back against the Red Sea, not a pawn, bishop, or knight on their side. The Egyptians pressing in. The situation from the Egyptian point of view is clearly checkmate. Yeah, like they think, oh, we've got these dumb Israelites. We're going to get them back. So we know what Moses said, but what was Moses thinking? Well, the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary said this about Moses. Never, perhaps, was the fortitude of a man so severely tried as that of Moses in this crisis. Exposed as he was to various and inevitable dangers, the most formidable of which was the vengeance of his own people, a seditious and desperate multitude. But his unruffled, magnanimous composure presents one of the sublimest examples of moral courage to be found in history. And whence did his courage arise? He saw the miraculous cloud still accompanying them and his confidence arose solely from the hope of a divine interposition although perhaps he might have looked for the expected deliverance in every quarter rather than in the direction of the sea in the face of danger Moses saw the cloud only Moses looked to God and because of that only Moses had confidence and the point here is what trial are you facing how is the enemy pressing down on you can you see hope right in in front of you? Can you see the cloud? Do you believe that God will fight for you too if you will just be still? I think it was also Moses had been given a promise from God. God told him what to do and and God had shown himself to be a man of his word all up until now. So why did Moses have a reason to doubt that? Yeah. And that's one thing that I really love about worship songs today. There are so many that remind you that God keeps his promises. Mm-hmm. And whether it's something that God told you in the Bible or God told you in your quiet time with him, if he set you on a path and he said go, then he's going to get you through it. Yes. And so as you contemplate that question, uh, do you believe that God's going to fight for you? Think through that. What has he told you? That What promise has he given you that he's sure to keep? So then how can that increase your faith? Moses has a connection with God that he believes and he sees the cloud. Even when everybody else is so scared, they're distracted. They're looking at the army instead of the cloud. Mm-hmm. And Moses has learned, keep your eye on God. Oh, I love that image of, are you looking at the army behind you? Or are you mm-hmm. looking at the cloud in front of you? Mm-hmm. Continue.
continuing on then in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. It's not clear why God seems a little upset with Moses here, kind of accusing him of crying out. But it often seems in these conversations that God answers Moses as if he represented the crying Israelites. Verse 16, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. It will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. This is so cool. This is no ordinary game of chess. In this game, there is this extra piece called the cloud, and it moves in supernatural ways that far exceed any move a queen, a king, or a pharaoh can make. Do you think it said that that the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other? Oh, we're going to talk about that. The Israelites had the light on their side, We're going to talk about that. Yes. So let's talk about, here's here's the cloud explained. We know from uh, chapter 13, verse 21, that the Lord is in the cloud. It appears that the angel of God is one and the same as the Lord because he's also in the cloud. And just as Moses said, he, God, will fight for Israel. So the cloud and angel are standing between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The separation stops the Egyptians from attacking and blocks the Israelites' view of the Egyptians so they could focus on the cloud, Mm -hmm. God. So they can't panic anymore because they can't even see the Egyptians. It's like, whoa, 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 I got to come between them. He's like, all right, if you're just going to keep looking back, well, then I'm going to go back there. Yes, I'm going to go in between y'all. The cloud is providing light to one camp and darkness to the other. The darkness is on the Egyptians and this should have Mm -hmm. been a warning sign to them. They had just experienced darkness days earlier and the darkness was followed by the death of the firstborn. But you know, Pharaoh, he's stubborn. Now the cloud with the two sides is another cool picture of the divine nature of God that appears frequently in both the Old and New Testament. God has has two facets to his nature, darkness representing judgment and light representing salvation. This physical light and darkness are foreshadowing of what would be explained to us in the New Testament when John said this in 8.12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Israelites had the light of life in this scene and the Egyptians have the darkness of judgment. So when John said that, the Israelites would have known that they were referencing this in this, this story. And let me tell you, there's so much more there. And I'm going to give you something that I do as a little Bible tip. I do word studies all the time. So I use Bible Gateway. And if you have that, you can type in the search at the top. So in this case, I typed in, because I knew there were verses out there about this, I typed in two words, light, and I typed in darkness. 
And in the column on the right, once you hit search, you can see all the verses from the Old and New Testament or from even specific books about light and darkness where they're both mentioned together. In this case, there were 55 verses total, 34 in the Old Testament and 21 in the New Testament. So just a heads up, if you ever wanna do this on your own, play with words. It's super fun to do because it really helps you see how a lot of the Old Testament imagery is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is gonna bring in the New Covenant. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so the Red Sea crossing. The crossing of the Red Sea is to the Old Testament what the resurrection is to the New Testament. So the, the, the Red Sea is a big deal in the Old Testament. It's referred to many, many, many times. When the writers of the Old Testament wanted to refer to God's miraculous power, they returned to the Red Sea more than any other event. Because it's a pretty big miracle. It's a big miracle. In the same way, when the writers of the New Testament want to refer to God's miraculous love, they point us to the cross. When the Israelites' back was against the Red Sea, they turned to the cloud. When your back is against the Red Sea, you need to turn to the cross. That is good. Bible bender for me. Okay, good. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Okay, so here's a little science on the parting of the sea. The east wind would have served two purposes, to hold back the water, but also to dry the land so that it was firm enough to support them, because it would have been just muck. It is estimated that to get almost 2 million people across in one night, the width of the path between the waters would have had to be half a mile wide. Despite the miracle of seeing the water split, it would have been terrifying to most of them. Think about it. I would have been staying in the middle. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. If you have a wall of water that just you don't, you can't fathom how it's being held up and it is so high and you have to walk down the middle, I would have been booking it. I don't know. I would have probably had a hard time because I don't like the thought of drowning. Well, plus they didn't have the science that we have now to know what's going on. But and even then, no, forget the science. There's no science to this. Like they don't know how it's happening. We no. wouldn't, I wouldn't have understood how it's happening. Well, I'm I'm thinking also about, we live in Florida and Bayshore Boulevard is, is a main strip that's right on the water mm-hmm. where we are now. Have you ever seen when a hurricane it, comes? Yes, and, and it, it sucks the water yeah, out. Yeah, it, it does sucks do that. the water all and out. And you can walk across the bay. You can walk across it. And I see people out there all the time walking their dogs on it. And I think to myself, okay, it's not like the Israelites, right? You can't see the big tower of water. But I think, are these people really out there? Like what goes out is it's gonna come back. (laughs) What if there's no warning? Are they crazy? Yeah, except it never gets that deep like this did. But But you're right. There's They don't need science to know that this is a pretty darn big miracle. Right. Well, in the near future, our new nation, Israel, is going to have to do battle. And Josephus, who wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, he does point out that he thinks, because we're going to have a battle actually pretty soon. He's going to battle the Amalekites in a few chapters, um, that the Israelites actually gathered the weapons from the bodies of the Egyptians. And that's how they fought. How, that's how they had the weapons to fight in the next. For the future. Yeah. Like ah. really soon in the future, which See? I thought was cool. 
to think through that. Like, oh yeah, when he take gives advantage. You your miracle, he's going to bring you through it. And he's also going to give you the weapons to fight what's on the other side. Exactly. Good point. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. All right. So it says the Lord looked down. Like, couldn't the Lord see all the time? Well, the mm-hmm. last time we read this exact same phrase, phrase, the Lord looked down, it was in Genesis 18. And that was season one of Bible Book Club. When the Lord looked down toward Sodom. And we know what it, happened it to that. Didn't go well for Sodom and it's not going to go well for the Egyptians. First, the wheels came off. There are some interpretations that imply that the wheels got stuck in the mud and literally came off when the horses tried to pull the chariots like they're stuck. And perhaps the Israelites may have coined the phrase, the phrase that we all know, the wheels came off. <laughs> we still say it today. We still say it today. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So our greatest Red Sea lesson is this. When your back is against the Red Sea, trust God. And the Israel rejects versus trust scorecard is now dead even with three rejections and three trusts. As the Israelites find their faith again and put their trust in God and in Moses, how could they not when what Moses said came true? The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. I will say this is a side note. I couldn't find anywhere that really stated for a fact whether Pharaoh died or not. It said everyone in Pharaoh's army, but is Pharaoh over the army or in the army? Was he? St- I kind of like to picture him standing on the sidelines watching the devastation. Mm, I kind of read it to mean he died with them. Yeah, we don't know. We may never know. But uh, just want to point this out that this is the Bible book club, right? And we do have verses every week. If you don't follow us on Instagram, you want to go do that because we put out a special Bible verse that goes with each episode. And we have some cool graphics that go along with the verse. So you can share that, enjoy it on your feed in both Instagram and Facebook. What is our verse for the week, Susan? It's the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.